If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson. Scott will be back next week. His vacation done. His tan bronze, I suspect. I don't know. I don't know. I... I've never asked Scott what he does on his vacation, whether he just sits in the house and watches old replays of NASCAR races. That could be. I mean, that's that's kind of his, his jam. Or if he is outside, stripped down to almost nothing, slathering himself in turtle oil to get a nice, deep, leathery tan all over. I, I have not asked. And as I throw out some of these ideas, I've decided I'm not going to ask. <laughs> There are some things that are simply best not to know anything about. Um, and, and if you were one of those people at the naturist resort up highway six, who say you thought you saw Scott, no, I don't think that was him. I don't think that was him, but well, that you can ask him. You could call in next week and say, was that you? I don't We have heard, so the story goes anyway, that, uh, the president of Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky says that to help him get his work done, and I guess there's things to be done when you're in the middle of a war, he likes to crank up the ACDC and listen to dad rock, he calls it. Dad rock. And it got me wondering about how many people do this. I am, I am totally fine, personally, totally fine having music playing while I work. Maybe it comes from years of working as a sports writer. You're writing a story, a column at the end of a game. You've got speakers right in your face in the press box blaring because everyone else is leaving. And you're trying to come up with like how to write a story while you've got ACDC, just like that blaring in your face. So maybe I've just gotten used to it, but I've also heard people who cannot for the life of them, they cannot do anything unless they are in sort of the cone of silence as if they were living in a monastery. Eric Alper is a music writer. He's a music publicist. He's a music commentator. I am guessing, Eric Alper, that a man who spends as much time working in the world of music must be fine listening to music while he works. The last thing I want to do is be alone with my thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I am firmly standing not only with the Ukraine, but with the Ukraine president. Yeah, you know, and, and there's a lot of science backing up how he feels and how a lot of people feels. In fact, Spotify last year um, had a survey and they found out that 61% of all of the people that they surveyed listened to work, uh, listen to music at work in order to boost their productivity and happiness. And even more compelling that they say that 90% of workers perform better and 88% produce more accurate work when using music in the background as a tool. Um, so, you know, I guess it all depends on what kind of music you like to listen to. If you're kind of defending yourself off of a potential world war three, you want guns and roses and ACDC yep, yep. and all that music to kind of rev you up. Yeah, for the air day. supply is probably not doing it for you. If you're, <laughs> uh, if you're looking to save your country from incoming weapons, uh, no, it's, but it, I'm surprised by those numbers that you talk about, because it seems as though it seems, and this is just anecdotally that more people, if you're in an office space and you are making noise, people give you the stink eye, they want quiet, and yet somehow music, according to these numbers, seems to be the exception to that, that they're okay with the noise of music. I think it depends on when surveys were taking place. You know, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to underestimate what being in isolation from COVID and a lot of people working from home, what it did to our brains and our happiness. Um, the fact is that more people are coming out with aggressing, with more stress, with being aggressive, with having productivity slumps, being in an office environment. Um, even though it's positive, it's collaborative, I get all of that. But the lack of the barriers and the personal space that people are not used to and haven't been used to in a number of years is causing a lot of distress and mental health anguish and unhappiness within the office in some cases. And that's where music can absolutely play a part in kind of, you know, decreasing, you know, the, the stress level of stuff, as long as people are, are okay with music being played in the office, even if it is through headphones. I will suggest though, that the, there may be nothing that will create more division in an office, not even the, should we have music or should we not have music? 
what kind of music should be playing in the office? I'm sure there have been fistfights over who controls the radio. In my office, I have my two dogs and that's it. And they drive (laughs) me up the wall listening to Alvin and the Chipmunks all day long because that's their favorite. Um, No, I agree. You know, there are some offices and certainly there are some people who do want air supply. They want jazz. In fact, they want things without lyrics in it because sometimes the lyrics um, tend to make you start thinking of things that you don't necessarily want to think about. Maybe past memories, maybe exes or you know, current, you know, strife that you're having. Um, But it's also a a huge distraction for people. Um, But the fact is, though, that people are listening to music more and more these days. In fact, North Americans are now listening to 32 hours a week of music, according to a couple of studies, including Spotify, which take with a grain of salt because it's Spotify and they want you to listen to music. Um, But that just kind of lets people like me to think that, we're all getting on board with this whole music is medicine. Music is a healing tool and music, you know, in the gym, music listening, that's you know, yeah. bar and restaurants, it helps things go a little bit faster for, uh, for I, people. I had a guest on a music therapist a, a long time ago on my show and asked that question because I mean, everybody knows if you go for a run, if you're running without music in your headphones or running with music that pumps you up, everybody knows your performance is better with music. And it's a bizarre thing that something that is, you can hear it, but it's not a tangible thing. It's not a chemical that you've put into your body or it can have an absolutely real effect on how you perform. There's nobody, nobody would dispute that. There's no question. I just wonder if it does the same when it's just your mind that is being used as opposed to a physical function. I I totally agree with that. And I think if we all agree that that music helps people in terms of running, um, in terms of, of getting better productivity and keeping your mind off of the mundane stuff, like putting one foot in front of another for 26 and a half miles. Um, it can absolutely do that in the workplace. I'll, I'll tell you a really quick, quick story is I, I, I do marathons for fun. I don't finish them, but man. I do them for fun. The last <laughs> one I did this, this year in Toronto, my phone died about a little bit more than halfway. And I just stopped. I just said, okay, that's it. Because I couldn't even imagine running without music and just listening to my body slowly break down. And I think a lot of people would be like that thinking like, there's no way that I can just listen to nothing but the photocopier running in the background. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent with you. I'm not a runner, but the times that I have, nothing is worse than the, just the panting of your breath and the slapping of your feet <laughs> going. And, and then is, is what, that, is that it? Is that the last? Exactly. And what you started with, I'm going to hear for, for the yeah. rest of my life. And yeah. Eric, what you started with just the thoughts in your head. Uh, you know, these are, these are days when we sometimes some of us want to hide those thoughts in our head and keep it busy with something else. It's a fascinating topic about, uh, Zelensky and, you know, and, Maybe we'll find out. We'll, we'll talk to, we'll, there'll be people testing all the world leaders and then seeing who is a good world leader and what they're listening well, to. According to this week, Justin Trudeau really, really likes Taylor Swift. Mm, that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> Eric Alper, always appreciate you doing this. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. Have a good weekend. We all know, uh, everybody in this city knows that Hamilton is an expensive place to live. We have a lot of people. We don't have enough housing. There's other things going on as well. But there is, there are new numbers out that show, uh, these numbers were released just recently. 37% of those who rent in Hamilton are spending more than 30% on their rent and utilities, more than 30%, 14% are spending more than 50% of what they bring home on housing. It is, uh, I don't think anyone's going to dispute that this is a problematic number that, uh, that doesn't really work for a whole lot of people. I want to bring in Tom Cooper, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Tom, how are you today? Hey, Scott. Good to hear from you. You as well. This is, uh, these are pretty, some pretty depressing numbers, but I got to say, I'm not entirely surprised whatsoever, maybe by the absolute numbers, but the general concept, I'm not even a little bit surprised. Yeah, I'm not surprised either, but uh, even more scary is the fact that these numbers are now two years old. Uh, so they're, they're new. it's new information uh, that Fallon Hewitt from The Spectator was able to pull together from the census data uh, that was collected in 2021. So really, we're looking at a lagging indicator of prices that were high in 2021, and from all indications, they're much, much higher now. 
most places, most people, most experts say 30%-ish is a reasonable amount to spend on housing. So uh, those numbers that we just read, 37% spending more than 30, we don't know exactly how much more. So it's it's more the 14%, I think, that are spending more than 50% on housing that is, I think, of a concern to us. Is that fair? Yeah, it, but but certainly the the lower number is is concerning as well because when you're spending more than thirty percent of your your income towards rent, uh, other things are falling through the cracks, and it may mean an accumulation of personal debt. You know, not being able to purchase um, medicine or 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 the healthy food you need, and and so there's always choices made. But but you're right, Scott. Fourteen uh, percent of of people spending more than half of their income towards housing is absolutely unacceptable in a, in a modern uh, caring society. There, there's two ways to look at this, Tom, and and one of them I don't know whether we know the answer to this. Is this a an earnings? question that people in the city are not being paid appropriately, or is this that rent is too high? Because if you're saying 50% or 14% are spending more than 50% of their earnings on housing, one of the possible arguments is, well, people are just not being paid very much. Housing isn't that much of a problem. They don't make enough money. The other half is, no, no, housing is out of control and people are being paid just fine. Are you leaning towards the latter? I am leaning towards the latter, although we've seen, you know, the the fact that we've had um, cost of living increases, inflation uh, skyrocket over the last couple of years at their highest rate it's been in in, in four decades. Uh, certainly the cost of rental housing has has spiked even higher than that. And, and so we're looking at four or five times the increase to inflation for, for one, two bedroom apartments. And, and there's lots of reasons behind that, Scott. Um, you know, we we've known for a while that uh, Hamilton has sort of been a destination point for for people from the GTA uh, looking for more affordable units. Well, now those affordable units have been gobbled up, and 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 we've seen the result. But the other piece of it is is really what we call the commodification of housing. So investors buying up affordable housing. Um, sometimes renting it out for as much as they think they can get on the open market, sometimes not making it available at all, just holding on to vacant units and hoping the pricing will increase so they can sell it down the road. And and so that's creating uh, a lack of availability for for people who need um, affordable housing. And and that's where we've seen, you know, the the crisis in in homelessness, more than 1700 people now living on the streets in Hamilton because they simply can't afford those units anymore. Well, and it, the one of the real challenges, I won't say the challenge, one of the real challenges in the city and I've talked about this before, I may have talked about it with you before. If you try to build a giant apartment or condo building, you have people complaining that the building is too big and it's screwing up density in their neighborhood. If you try to expand into outside the urban boundary of people saying we can't expand outward, we don't want to have sprawl. If you say we want to allow people to intensify their neighborhood, people say, wait, I bought a house in this neighborhood because it was quiet. I don't need to have four times as many people now. Any suggestion, any idea for how to fix this? is running into a roadblock of one kind or another. Well, not not always. I, I, I think we can solve this problem uh, with appropriate federal and provincial investments in, in affordable housing and, and do it within the current ur- urban boundary. The, the, the fact remains that governments have, at senior levels anyway, have, have washed their hands of, of putting uh, the appropriate amount of, of resources into building new affordable housing or social housing over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, back in the 60s and 70s, that's when we saw a lot of these uh, larger apartment, multi-residential apartment units going up. Um, but the government stopped doing that. And and so we're seeing the result of that lack of affordable housing being built. At the same time, you know, people are, are making investments in affordable housing and, and, and buying them up. And uh, there tends to be a lot of condos going up and, and that may be, you know, that may be part of it. Uh, but I certainly think uh, that with political will, uh, we can make this happen. Um, but it, it does it does take a commitment. And yeah, sometimes it means a multi-residential building going up in our neighborhood. And, and you know, what would people rather have? The crisis we're seeing in homelessness now or, you know, somewhere where people have the right to housing mm. and can live? Tom, can it happen fast enough though? I think everybody who's listening 
supports the idea of Canada being a welcoming country and bringing immigrants in. But we are bringing in a lot of people right now. That's not, you know, we don't want to be xenophobic about it, but there's no question that's also putting some pressure on housing here and elsewhere. Even if governments put money towards this, can we possibly keep up with the people who need it now and the people who are coming? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. I think, you know, we can do both, but we have to do it smartly and we have to be committed uh, to ensuring that everybody who comes to Canada is, has has available affordable housing for them. And and so let's, you know, let's make these decisions, these policy decisions with with that in mind. And and you're right. Um, you know, even if if shovels went in the ground today um, on a lot of these projects, and and some are, the federal government, for instance, is starting to make a lot more investments in affordable housing than they have over the last decade or so. But it's going to take time, and we need we need interim solutions. Yeah. Um, so you know, you and I have talked about um, you know some ideas to, to help mitigate the the homelessness crisis, including the idea of of tiny shelters. Uh, to to help people in the interim, um, but ideas like that uh, need to need to be talked about as well as a transitional phase uh, until these new housing units are built. It is uh, it is a huge huge challenge. Tom Cooper is the director of Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Tom, always love having you on. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Scott. The fact that it's so beautiful may have you saying, you know what, I really want to do. I really want to throw the bathing suit on and go down and swim in some of the waters around this city. Well, there are some places that it's good to do that, but you may want to hear this, what we're going to talk about before you just dive right in, because not everywhere is calling your name. Richard McDonald is with Hamilton Public Health Services, manager, manager of food and water safety, joins us now. Richard, thank you for doing this today. Thank you for having me. So yeah, there, there are places that, uh, that are going to lure people into the water this weekend because, uh, you know, it's the middle of summer and that's what we do, but not everywhere around this city is our places that people should be going into, correct? Actually, this is a spoiler alert. Uh, we can, all of our beaches now are, uh, safe for swimming. As of, okay. So, um, earlier today, yeah, yeah, earlier today, there were three or four. You're absolutely right. So Valens, Pier 4 and Confederation. And um, we just uh, got their lab results late this afternoon, and we are happy to announce that uh, all seven beaches in Hamilton are safe for swimming. That's amazing. Okay. So yeah, breaking news because I I was prepared to say stay out of the water. It's like Jaws. Um, So, okay. Help me out here though, because am I wrong that usually the hotter it gets, the more likely it is that we're going to have algae or whatever else in the water, which is going to make us stay out. We've had a hot stretch. Should that not have made it less likely that the water gets okay? Well, water quality can change from day to day, even hour to hour, depending on the weather and other conditions. So there, there are really four main factors that, that impact that, one of them being rain, uh, wind, waterfowl, and shallow water. And so rain is one of the biggest factors that impact beach water quality. So, um, you know, we've had in the last uh, month and a half, even the last few days, um, heavy rain events that does that does wash, wash contaminants in the streams uh, or rivers and lakes. Well, you know, small amounts of rainfall are unlikely to have uh, much of an impact. Uh, we always advise that, you know, after big rain events, uh, that you avoid swimming for 24 to 48 hours after that heavy rain, rain event. Right, right. Okay, but now it's that, that has moved away and things have been cleared up and, okay. Um, it, it, how often... How often have we had it where all the beaches around the city, all the water swimming areas are good to go? Is this the norm or is this unusual that they're all good right now? No, that's not unusual. And it's not unusual that after big rain events um, that we could see beaches that may be unsafe for swimming. So um, again, that's a major factor when it, that does impact uh, water quality in around not just city of Hamilton, but any of our, our public beaches around Ontario. How often are the, you said you said you just got the lab results back. How often do you test? So we test uh, on a weekly basis, and they're so tested for E. coli bacteria once per week during our swimming season, which begins from the end of May to the end of August. And I'm assuming, because the fact that you're saying it's okay to swim, I'm assuming that E. coli doesn't change that significantly in the span of a week. So somebody could say, hey, it was tested today, so it's good to go for the next week. It's not going to change by tomorrow. Well, it could. Um, Again, you know, with water quality, we only test... We test uh, once per week, 
Um, and the test is only good as the day that it's taken. So it does take time for bacteria to grow uh, when we actually submit those samples to the lab. So it takes about 24, 40 hours to get results. So when we do identify uh, on the Tuesday after our holiday weekend, when we did take, take the samples, we had results that were less than, than optimal at three of our beaches. Um, those were all retested, and they have all come back now with uh, uh, water quality levels that are below uh, the, the ministry standards. I, you're not a tourism guy, so this is not really your job. You're a you know food and water safety guy. So, I mean, I know those two things are different, but I also know, I suspect that the city would always love to be able to say, hey, you know, something else that you can do in the summertime is swim in the water in Hamilton. We would, we would love for that to be always the case. Do you, has it been, do you know if it's been a hard sell? Because there was a time when you probably would have had to have been dropped on your head to go swimming in some of the waterways around here. It's a lot cleaner now, but has it been a hard sell to get people back in the water? Oh, you're right. I'm definitely not a tourism person, but I mean, from a beach water quality status perspective, I would say bring your friends and family down and enjoy Hamilton's beaches. It is, uh, it is good news. I mean, as I say, I was expecting when you came on that we were going to be talking about where not to swim. I'm, I'm glad that you, you brought the, you brought the good news on a summer Friday afternoon. That's, uh, that's what we like. Uh, Richard McDonald, Hamilton I'm Public. To... Say that again. Thank you. No, sorry, but it was, it was breaking news. So I, I'm glad I got to speak to you first. Absolutely. No, that's fantastic. Richard McDonald, the uh, manager of food and water safety with Hamilton Public Health Services. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I'll tell you what, this studio right now is smelling like you can't believe. Uh, the, well, the, the gravy train is rolling through town, they're calling it. It started in Halifax. It is going to 20 cities across the country with free poutine, epic prizes, swag giveaways, and gravy-fueled entertainment. That's how it's being described. Uh, Smokes Summer, Smokes Poutinery is uh, in Westdale. You can go tomorrow night to uh, the one in Westdale, 4 Newton Avenue, and get free poutine. And for the first bunch of people, anyway, it's, um, and they brought a bunch in. Uh, joining us is Mike Graham, the Vice President of Brand and Marketing with Smokes Poutinery. Mike, how are you today? Hey, I'm great, guys. How are you? I am, uh, well, I'm smelling this poutine that you have sent and that is sitting in front of us. And um, you're going to hear some slapping and of gums and licking of teeth here. But this is, uh, tell me, while I take a bite of this and try it, tell me about the idea behind sending the gravy train across town. All right, you know, the, the big thing, there's three things that we're trying to achieve here. Um, one of them is we want to tell everyone in Canada about our great partnerships with the dairy farmers of Canada and how proud we are that we use only 100% Canadian cheese curd made with quality Canadian milk. That's, that's key with our poutine to make sure it has those great curds. The second thing we wanted to do is talk about our LTO. And you're trying it right now, I believe. And we have three summer LTOs, the Porkies, the Hogtown, and the Big Chorizo, all built on the chorizo sausage. But the main reason that we're doing this and what's dear to our hearts is we want to thank our fans. Our fans, you know what? We have been so lucky with the way our, our, our people come out to us and they really become fans of our brand. And we really want to go out and thank them. And every year now we're trying to go out and have a party and invite them in and treat them to some uh, poutine. Uh, we do other things like we have a fan of the year. Like what, what brands out there do stuff like this? You know, it's just our way of saying thank you and getting our... Uh, Fans into our uh, locations and to treat them uh, to a Putin. Let me tell you, while you're talking, we're sampling this. The um, the porkies, uh, the triple. What is it? Por- is is amazing. I don't even know what's all in it, but it's amazing. And my yeah. blood, my blood is slowing down. And the totally um, pulled pork, oh. double smoked bacon, and seasoned chorizo on top, of course, of fresh hand cut fries, squeaky cheese curd. And smoke signature gravy. It is amazing. And then we dove into the hog, the what's it called, hog town, which is amazing. I'm I'm actually wearing as much as I put in my mouth here, Mike. I, I'm. It's it's not this. It's not the cleanest food to eat. Let me tell you. It's um, you, that's you, for sure. There's no genteel way to do this. Um, 
It's amazing though. It's amazing. And, and I, I realized that as you're talking, I pronounced it wrong. It's got, it's Putin. Not, I, I always go with poutine. Is it, am I losing credibility if I say poutine rather than Putin? You know, I, I, I switch back and forth because we're, uh, you know, we're a bilingual country and, uh, uh, in uh, Quebec, where it comes from, it's uh, uh, poutine, and most of Canada, it is poutine. So either it's correct, you lose no points there. Um, Dave Woodard from our news department is sitting in here with me, by the way. He also is slamming it into his face. Dave, what's your, uh, what's your report so far? <laughs> uh, delicious. I did not try the uh, big chorizo yet. Uh, I'm going to get into that one. I got to say, my favorite so far, though, uh, is uh, the, 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 the Porky's, Porky's triple? triple Pork. I think, uh, like you said, you know, the blood slows just a little bit, <laughs> allowing you to enjoy it that much more. Um, trying to take radio-friendly bites on air is very difficult. Uh, I gave up on that one. I figure <laughs> if people can hear the food slapping and sloshing in your mouth, it, it adds. So, so, Mike, tell us about uh, if people in Hamilton are one Wanting to take part in this in the gravy train, it's coming to Westdale tomorrow. Uh, do you have the details near at hand? Yes, we're there tomorrow from six until nine p.m. And I got to tell you, the the team at Westdale, the franchisee and their team, are just outstanding. I think we have lost Mike, but you know what? We will um, we'll let Mike go. I'll mention that Kenny is the manager over in Westdale who. Um, who brought the food over here. Uh, if you want to do it again, six till nine, I believe tomorrow over in Westdale. Let me get the address here for Newton Avenue in Westdale. Smoke, Smokey's Poutinery. If this is what, Dave, if this mm. is what's there, it might be worth your while. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you want to, like, I mean, it's going to be packed. Like, I know school is out, but the McMaster students, the ones that are in the area, are going to be there early. If that, if I know anything about people in Westdale, <laughs> the Mac students will be there first. So make sure that you get there. Bring a that, wheelbarrow. Those free five hundred uh, that they're giving out at the beginning will be gone very quickly. Yeah, Will says bring a wheelbarrow. I don't know if you need a wheelbarrow. <laughs> just a lot of napkins. And have access to a washing machine, as I have just evidenced trying to eat this on the air. I um, I was listening. You guys were, wasn't bad. Yeah, that's, well, Jen, you, uh, you having to actually work and do the news has kept you away. We'll give you a sample afterwards. Oh, but. you're so nice. I'm glad you asked the Putin question. Putin, it's, you know. Because back in, you know, my teen days, my teen years, I worked at New York Fries. And yes. a woman I worked with would call it Putin. And I thought she was out to lunch, but, but th- turns out that's the French way of saying That's the it. way. Well, uh, once again, just uh, for 6 till 9.30 is the actual time for Newton Avenue in Westdale tomorrow. There is some free poutine, poutine, however you wish to say it. Um, Dave Woodard, I don't know if he'll be there, but um, I know he will be there in spirit after yes. tasting this. And um, There may be not much left of me other than spirit after this. <laughs> You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. If there is a topic that is going to generate discussion that is both complicated and important and tricky at times because of how it can be perceived, it is often going to be immigration. And yet it's an important discussion, I think, to have these days because we have seen record immigration last year in Canada even more, a million and a half people potentially this year coming into Canada. And it does bring challenges. It doesn't mean that immigration is bad. It simply means there are challenges that go with it. Randall Denley is an author, he's a columnist with the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post, wrote in the National Post today about this. Joins me now. Randall, how are you today? Good. This, as I say off the top, this is one of those topics that's really tricky because If you say anything about whether we should be having the level of immigration that we have, some people will say, well, you're being xenophobic. And I'm reading what you've written and I'm reading what some other people have talked about or spoken about. I don't think it's that. I think it's a legitimate conversation to say, can we handle these levels in this country? Absolutely. And I think it would be the first basic question you would answer before you increase the number of people coming into the country. Can we house them? Do we have adequate health care for them? You know, in fairness to new people coming in and also to people here now, what's the point in adding, in Ontario's case, half a million people in the last 12 months 
And we knew 12 months ago that Ontario was definitely short of housing. And we got all kinds of shortage in healthcare as well. So why would you deliberately set out to make that worse? And, you know, it's uh, use the term challenge, which implies that, you know, maybe you can solve this. I'm not very optimistic about that because Ontario just can't build housing fast enough mm. for that kind of population increase, nor can we expand healthcare that quickly. It's, you know, that's not a, a quick thing to do. I think the government's working hard at it, but if we didn't admit one more people for the next, one more person for the next 10 years, we can probably catch up. But I think that's how far in the hole we are. When you wrote this, have you had any feedback from people who have call, who have said you're anti-immigrant because of this? Because again, I think I think uh, this becomes a, a it gets mushed together with all kinds of different things every time this is brought up. Yeah, I haven't yet. Although there's been a lot of comment on the, uh, the post website today, but to me, it doesn't matter who the people are, where they're coming from. It's really just a case of numbers, and when you you have to think about fairness to people coming in, but also fairness to people who are here now. You know, all of us in the media have given a lot of coverage to the supply and demand crisis and housing, what that's done to prices. It's very difficult for people to get housing now. You know, there was an Angus Reid poll done a few days ago, and they asked Ontarians, what were the top three items? Uh, Affordability, housing, health. Yeah, making two of those work consistently, and we're excited about it. You know, when when Canada hits forty million people, it's like, wow, that's that's fantastic. You know, Ontario added five hundred thousand. Premier had kind of a cheery tweet. That's why we're building one and a half million homes. Except we're not building one and a half million homes. We have a plan. Sure, one and a half million homes. Well, and and did that and Randall. You bring up a, a really, I think, another really important point here, and that is, I don't, I think this discussion gets, gets, breaks down if we simply say, well, we're only looking out for the people who are here, the, you know, the Canadians, the true Canadians, whatever you want to say. We're also making it very difficult for those people who are coming here, hoping to try and build a better life when there isn't available or affordable housing or all these kind of things or job, well, there are jobs, I guess, but th- there are challenges, not just for the people who are here, which is often what people look at. It's difficult for people arriving. Absolutely. And they're the ones facing the biggest challenge because, hey, I just got here. I'm looking for an apartment in Toronto. And say, hey, well, good luck with that. I mean, if you've been here for a while, you've got some kind of accommodation. Maybe you're overpaying for it. You don't like it, but you've got something. There's been some interesting coverage lately of this issue where we see a significant percentage of people who come here, immigrants, say, this doesn't work for me. I can't find housing. The cost of living is too high. I'm going to turn around and go back home again, which makes the whole thing pretty futile. The only way this is ever justified by government is to say, well, but we need more workers. Well, we do. But to me, it's kind of chasing our tail because we bring in more workers. No, I don't guess we're workers, but we bring in more workers. Okay, well, now we need more housing for the workers. We need more health care for the workers. We need more everything because the population is getting bigger. So if we could have fixed this by bringing in more workers, gotten everything into balance, we'd have done it by now because we've had aggressively increasing immigration since 2016. And still, we say, well, we should have workers. It's just, it's just a... Like a dog chasing his tail, I think, is what this is. But it's very difficult to get political parties to address this because I think they're afraid of what you were talking about at the outset. People say, oh, you're anti-immigrant. It's got nothing to do with being anti-immigrant. It's being fair to all the immigrants who are already here and all the ones who are coming. If you can't house them, what's the point of inviting them to your country? There's more dimensions to a person than to say, He's a worker. Okay, but where's that worker going to live? And the government's plan to build more housing is, I mean, they're doing everything they can. But they think they're going to build one and a half million houses over 10 years. We've never built more than 100,000 a year. Now the number's falling off because of high interest rates, increased housing prices, 
hard to buy a house. If you're not available to buy a house, someone's going to build one. Well, it's a very unrealistic target, I would say. And even if you could achieve that, we have already a significant housing deficit in Ontario. There's just not mm-hmm. enough housing for the people who are here. And then you and you you mentioned another really good point too, and that is um, any political party today that would come out publicly and say we have to close the borders is going to be accused of echoing Donald Trump, and that is going to be terrible for anybody to have to li- because it'll get lost entirely. The message will get lost entirely. It's simply you don't want people coming into Canada. There won't be new. I don't think there will be nuance heard. I think it'll be you are anti-immigrant, as you just said. Well, it's, it's easy to make a wedge issue out of it, but of course, you don't really need to close the borders, and no one will suggest that. But if you go back to 2015, the last year of Harper, immigration flow was about 250,000 people a year. That's still a significant number, but it seemed like we, we could handle that. So, you know, if that's if that's the number we can handle, or whatever that number is, that's the number we should be admitting, but we shouldn't be increasing it by a hundred percent as we've done. Yeah. It's, 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 somehow it's, thinking it's all going to work out in the end. It is an incredibly complicated uh, situation. The column is Ontario can't handle Trudeau's immigration influx. The author is Randall Denley, who's been joining us uh, in the national post. Randall, really appreciate you taking time. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Well, I don't know if humming is the word, but the Ticats are playing tomorrow night. The 0-3 Ticats looking to get into the win column to break that zero that's sitting there right now. That's uh, it's an ugly-looking zero. The Ottawa Red Blacks are in town tomorrow night, 7 o'clock after the game. Tune in right here, Rick Zamperin with the fifth quarter for your celebration or your non-celebration, <laughs> whichever it may be. I want to bring in a good friend of ours. He is a sports commentator. He's an official. Uh, he, he sometimes on local cable hosts parades, at which point they refer to him as effervescent. His name is Steve Foxcroft, the effervescent Steve Foxcroft. How are you? I'm good. I'm feeling very effervescent today. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I don't know how, I don't know where that one came from, but, uh, I mean, go with it, go with it. But. I gotta go with it. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully Mazzoli won't be feeling too effervescent tomorrow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the big mystery, isn't it? So Jeremiah Mazzoli, former Ticat quarterback now with Ottawa, missed almost a year with a broken leg. Of course, it has to be that he comes back for his first game back against his old team in Hamilton. And Steve, I, I know that there's always middle ground, there's gray area, but I kind of look at this like he's either going to be really rusty or I, I'm more fearful that he's going to come out and somehow just be really good. I don't, I hope not. Now, the first thing that I couldn't remember, he, is, he was nine seasons in Hamilton. That's an eternity in football life, right? Yeah, like, I yeah. couldn't believe that it was nine years that he was here. But to your point, will he be motivated? Absolutely. Will he be mobile? He can't be. Can he, Scott? Like, he, he's coming off a leg. Like, he's got one leg, really. Well, except they say they sat him for a few weeks even after he was ready in order for him to be, you know, back at full speed. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what to expect, but I'll tell you, the one thing I did not expect was for the Ticats to be 0-3 and, and look bad doing it. And so, you know, my, my, my expectation is probably with you that I don't expect Mazzoli to be able to torch them, but I didn't expect a lot of these teams to torch them so far. That's the thing. On paper, you and I were on side with them being really good yes, this year. Yes. And they've come out 0-3. They've whiffed every every time. They they need to play four quarters. They need to be disciplined. But this isn't stuff that we are just making up now, right? Like, we know this. Play four quarters, be disciplined. A strength of the team coming in was going to be our offensive line. And it's slowly getting back healthy. So hopefully we're going to be decent in that area tomorrow night. We need to be. Teams coming off by so far this season, 3-0. and Could it be that we're the one team that loses? No, we have to take care of business coming off the bye, don't we? It's, well, um, okay. So I would say yes. And the reasons are pretty obvious. We've talked many times 
on this sh- station about the fact that in the CFL, really, you know, nothing really matters until Labor Day. You could be 0-8 and, and really still get into the playoffs and then get hot and get to the Grey Cup. That, that can happen. However, the way the Ticats, the games they've lost have made it difficult in losing to Ottawa because they, they've lost to Toronto, they've lost to Montreal. Both of those teams now are leading in the tiebreak situation. So they basically got to win the next matchup with those teams. You don't want to give agree. Ottawa the advantage too, where they also have the tiebreak against you because now you're, j- even though you could start really badly and still make it in, you're making it so much harder for yourself. That's right. You have to have home field for what looks like might be the Eastern semifinal at this point. Boy, you'd love to have Ottawa or Montreal coming here. Toronto, like, I have to give kudos to them because they're doing I thought they were going to go backwards. They always Chad do. Kelly, they, he's, he's done the job so far. And they had BC come into BMO Field last week, and the Argos looked good. In fact, they embarrassed BC. But I think some of that was travel, maybe the field conditions and so on. So no team's as good as they are or as bad as they are. But getting back to us tomorrow, is this, like, this seems to me like it's a must-win game. And here we are only in week four. Yeah, I, I, I won't go as far as must win, but it, but it would definitely be a big help to win for a couple of reasons. Uh, obviously what we just talked about too, there's coming a moment. I don't know when it is. I don't know if it's now or soon when the fan base is going to get really cranky, uh, and losing to Ottawa. I don't know if losing to Ottawa will do that. I mean, the next week they play Edmonton that has lost what, 19 straight games. They have not won a home game since 2019. If Hamilton goes into Edmonton and loses that one, you will have the cranky fan base. Yeah, um, well, the, the fifth quarter with Rick, I've, I'd feel bad for him there. Um, you know, one thing I've liked with Schiltz and them, the big plays, like they're going for big plays. Tim White, good receiver, good hands downfield. So I hope to see a lot of that tomorrow where go, like just go for the jugular, throw it deep and Hopefully we connect on a few of those, kind of like we did at the start of the Montreal game at home. And and then it kind of fizzled out from there. So big plays win games. Yeah. You know, the, you know we, we can't lose track too of one other thing that I think, I mean, obviously this is an issue that will be here all year. Hamilton is hosting the Grey Cup and it's, you know, I, I'm sure that tickets will sell no matter what. Uh, they, I know they're on sale already. But I, you have got to do something to get yourself in a position where you can be there. We saw the impact that being in the Grey Cup had it two years ago when they were here playing at home. You've got to put yourself in a position where you've got a realistic chance. And Toronto, as you said, looks really good right now and is only going to get better barring injuries. Hamilton's got to start closing that gap and starting to look like they can compete in this division. I agree. And the energy that's in the town, like two years ago, it was a little subsided because of just the situation sure. in the world. But could you imagine if we do rebound, make the gray cup, the energy in the town, the expansion of the stadium to allow more people in it. And it kind of closes in the environment at the stadium would be great that day. So let's hope we can turn it around starting tomorrow. Kyle loans. I talked to him at the office this week for the tie cast. He said, yep, we're starting the win streak on Saturday. So we'll, we'll put Kyle on the spot. <laughs> let, let's, uh, let's hope that is the case for the folks who are going to be there and uh, for, you know, just in general, because it's, look, it's, it's always so much more pleasant around here when the local teams are doing well, especially the Ticats. It's, it's, it is time. 0-3 is, is ugly. It's, uh, it's time to start changing that. And they've got a chance because, again, Edmonton is later. You could be 2-3 and three before Thursday night is over. And, That's right, um, and we need to be. So that would be good. I'm looking forward to tomorrow just because it's going to be a great night at the ballpark. It's going to be fun. Hopefully the teams play well. It's a close game. It should be good. And, you know, let's not forget to mention Sean Burke, the Ottawa GM. He was a 15-year guy in Hamilton, too. He's going to be motivated to bring his team in here and mm. spank us around a little bit, too. If, but let's send Berkey back to the nation's capital with an L. If you go to the park tomorrow uh, and you want to spot Steve, he will be the one looking effortlessly effervescent wherever he is. Just look for the effervescence in the stands and that will be Steve Foxcroft. (laughs) Appreciate you doing this. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Talk soon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I 
can't remember when I first heard about El Nino, but then I also can't remember when I stopped hearing about El Nino. And as a result, I kind of always just thought, well, we deal with El Nino, but it's, it, it, it's not that simple. El Nino is back, we are told, in 2023. If you're sitting here thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. What is El Nino? Well, that's exactly why you're listening. Dr. Hossein Bonagdari is an associate professor in the Department of Civil Engineering and the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Ottawa, who joins us now. Doctor, thank you for this today. Hi, thank you for having me. So I, I'm probably maybe the only person who was thinking this, but I remember all the stories about El Nino a few years ago and then just sort of stopped paying attention and assumed it was always going on. But this, it's not the case. This is a, a, a situation or an event that comes and goes, correct? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, El Nino and La Nina are warm and cold phase of the major ocean current that flow across the tropical Pacific. They can disrupt global weather pattern and significantly impact marine life and, you know, our daily life, I can say. And the, the warm phase known as El Nino. So why... Why do they come and go? What we know that, okay, I'm going to get more into it in a second about what they can affect. You were just saying they can affect all kinds of things, but what affects it? What makes it happen? You know, just uh, this is the natural phenomenon. And we, we know, and they, they, this is not something new. I can say it is believed that there are, have, they, there, there have been at least 30 early no events uh, since uh, 1900s. And uh, even I can say since 20,000, uh, we observe at least four or five El Nino uh, situation in the country. But recently, due to impact of climate change and uh, this phenomenon, the situation can be really hard for the, the, the world, I can say. If uh, we have time, I can summarize the last uh, important and El Nino that was recorded. Maybe Please. If yes. we want to remember that, uh, the last El Nino goes back to the 1997. You know, that was the strongest ever recorded in the country. And we had several uh, extreme and unusual events. For example, El Nino contributed to the January 98 ice storm in eastern Canada. And three memorable snowstorm also marked for this period. And in February, 25, nearly uh, 70 centimeters of the snow fell part of uh, southern Manitoba. And winter, you know, and spring flooding, and the summer was also the hottest and longest on record. And right now, you know, if I want to summarize, and we observe June 2023 has been the hottest June on a longer pay and uh, longer period. And July 3 marked the hottest day even recorded globally with an average of 17 degrees compared to the previous record. You know, right now we are in the middle of the situation with the El Nino. So, it, okay, so if it happens, uh, we, we can't control it. There's nothing we can do. So even if we were to, uh, and I realize this would be utopia, but let's say that we could completely control climate change now, would that stop El Nino or does that happen even with or without? Is climate change merely accelerating it or exacerbating it? Is it always going to happen? Yeah. You know, El Nino exists and we cannot, you know, stop it. But, you know, right now with the carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide acts like a blanket trapping heat from the sun and causing the air's temperature to rise. And when we have uh, El Nino, and that means we have the superposition of two different elements that can increase significantly the impact of uh, heat on the, you know, uh, uh, on the with different parts of country. So what would we expect then? Well, you've mentioned about, um, you know, that it'll have an effect on different things. This summer and then into this winter, what would we expect we're going to see differently because this is now here? Yeah, you know, for the summer, certainly we will have uh, under influence of El Nino, uh, we have a period of intense and long heat, you know, in the July. And right now we, 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 we observe that and we will continue. Certainly we have variable precipitation during of the time. And most importantly, for this summer, I should 
talk about it is the problem of drought. And certain regions of Canada have experienced, uh, you know, a long period of drought, leading decrease of water reserves, water supply issues, and challenging conditions for agriculture. And my study right now showed this uh, at the end of May, the majority of the agricultural land are experienced abnormally dry conditions. And certainly this situation, uh, it, it will be uh, expected to become increasingly, increasingly critical in the coming months for in the July and most importantly in the August. And if we want to talk about the winter, you know, Globally, I can say on the impact of El Nino, the, the, the average temperature during our winter should be higher than normal. That means we have and we will face with the, the winter a little bit warmer than normal. But we certainly, again, we will, face, we will face different uh, extreme events like freezing rain, and we should be prepared for that. Variation in the, as I mentioned, in the precipitation and El Nino can disrupt winter precipitation pattern. That means, you know, in uh, in, the, in some region, uh, it results increase in rainfall in the seed of snowfall, and that can impact the snow accumulation in mountain area and region. You know, where the snow is important for uh, water supply system. Certainly, we will have extreme weather events and um, again something. We heard about it, uh, glacier uh, melting, higher temperatures. Mm. Certainly, we, we heard about that cause El Nino can accelerate glacier melting. Before we let you go, uh, one question that you probably, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. El Nino is Spanish. That means the boy. Why is it called the boy? What, what's the significance of the name El Nino or the boy? You know, this is the Latin word. You know, the, the, the name, because it goes back to the, the scientists, discovered this uh, natural, uh, I can say, meteorological phenomenon named El Nino and La Nina comes from a word of Latin. It is, uh, it, it is back. And if you didn't know what it was before, well, now you do. Uh, Dr. Hussein Abonagdari from the University of Ottawa, thank you so much for this today. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Tom, for keeping us on the air, even as we've been slurping into the microphone with various food offerings today. Uh, Thank you to Will for lining everything up. Folks, have a wonderful weekend. We will talk to you soon. See ya. 